You're listening to Podmo, the number one network that brings you the best story-driven content out there. Hey, all you Podmo addicts. So you know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. And one of the reasons why advertisers love Financial Sense is that they know the show has amazing listeners. Happy advertisers equals happy listeners, and that's a win-win for everybody. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about our audience. Just go to podsurvey.com sense. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before, I'd like to ask you to take ours and help support the show. Don't forget that you have a chance to win that $100 gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com sense. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep the show free. Let's do this. Your first priority when it comes to saving for retirement should be to make sure that you're putting away enough money. But once you've earmarked a percentage of pay for retirement savings, where do you put it? Today, we're here with James Baxter of Tideway Wealth and Ben Yeasley of Investment Direct. We're going to talk about strategies of drawing income from a pension for the long term and diversifying your income sources. There's been a lot in the news about the cost of income drawdown with costs being capped for investors. We expect more providers to follow suit in the coming weeks by moving on their drawdown charges. However, the main problem is how to maximize their income over a long period of time while not depleting their capital too much. James, what are the main pitfalls for investing for income in retirement? Well, I think the word freedom sums it up. I think uh, at long last, people aren't going to have a prescriptive way of withdrawing their retirement savings. Uh, They'll be able to take the money as and when they need it in the form that they want it. And also there are opportunities, if they don't use it during their lifetime, to pass it on. Any thoughts on the other side of the spectrum? Yes, and I think it was essential because retirement isn't you work till 65 and then suddenly stop. Retirement creeps up on people, people go part-time, people retire early, perhaps before their state pension starts. And so this gives an opportunity for people to use the money that's saved in a pension to suit their lifestyle. So somebody retiring, say, at 61 could now draw quite a bit of it out before, say, 65, until their state pension comes in. That flexibility is very welcome and very useful to people. How do you go about constructing the income strategy in terms of the underlying investment? Well, it's absolutely true that the freedoms aren't a sort of money machine. You don't suddenly have any more money to live on over your retirement. You just have the option to change the emphasis, whether you spend more up front or whether you spend more in the middle, etc. So, yes, the complex decisions about how to make your money last for your whole retirement are still there. Um, Of course, when you bought an annuity, it was a simple issue, but you only got a a 6% rate of income each year, which perhaps didn't meet your needs. I think the worry is because we're a a financial planning-led firm, I think we talk to clients very deeply about these issues. And I think the big worries they have is they are coming to the realisation that they are living much longer, or they intend to, in general, people living longer. Retiring at 55, that tends not to be our client bank, to be honest. But even even if you retire at 65, potentially you've got another 20 or 25 years of, 
of retirement income to plan for. So I think these are the big concerns that people have. If they strip too much out at the beginning, if inflation does return to the system, which it probably will somewhere down the line, um, how quickly will that erode into their capital? So it's quite, it's quite an interesting dynamic space to be discussing. Well, as Lee says, you know, our research shows that around 40% of people approaching retirement now aren't actually aware of the tax position. And also what virtually nobody's aware of is that whilst you are tax liability is at your income tax rates. If you were to make a one-off lump sum withdrawal from your pension in April, your pension provider is actually obliged to tax you using emergency tax principles. So if you wanted to, say, draw out a £15,000 taxable payment from your pension to just to pay for something, and you would be expecting to, say, pay 20% tax, therefore having 12000 left in your hands, you are going to be disappointed because your pension provider is going to be required to treat that 15000 as the first monthly instalment of 12 other ones. So you're going to be taxed as though you have £180,000 worth of income, which will give you a tax rate of around about 37%. That will leave you with quite a significant sum to reclaim from the Inland Revenue. But you'll have to wait. The Inland Revenue have said at the end of the tax year, they'll do a reconciliation. And if it's clear that um, you've had too much tax deducted, you'll have that repaid at some point during the next next tax year. But I don't think many people want to give an interest-free loan to the uh, taxman over a period of you know 12 to 18 months. So yes, if you want your tax back straight away, you're going to have to fill out a form P50 or P53, depending on your circumstance. You know, treating yourself is actually the number one uh, objective of people coming up to retirement now, over 40% of people do plan to treat themselves with some or all of their lump sum element of, of a particular part of their pension. And knowing exactly what you'll get in your hands is crucial, especially before making any commitments. You know, don't, you know, don't order the new three-piece suite until you've worked out how much you're going to have left in your hand. There's some very basic things you can do, and some of it's just common sense. Never take out more than you actually need. There is a propensity to take out, to round up, so people round up and they take up money they don't actually need. Have a well-diversified portfolio if you're staying invested. Make sure it's um, it's designed to generate as tax-efficient an income as possible. So there's lots of things that can be done. But sustainable income going forward is, is, is the key to anyone in retirement. Well, we always talk about a safe yield of 3%. Uh, that also leaves some capital growth to counter inflation, to counter charges, because anyone that stays invested in a pension will still be paying charges as well. Mm-hmm. We think that's a relatively decent level to be taking income from. It may sound disappointing to people. They've been quite used to higher yields recently with some of the fixed interest investments. But we think that's a very safe level to build into a plan going forward. You can never second-guess the markets, um, and that's, that may have capital issues uh, going forward if we have a market correction. But... Uh, uh, markets generally over time wander upwards um, and if you're looking at a 20 to 25 year investment horizon or, or timescale in retirement that should be fine. What's changed is that if you die at any time before age 75 any pension money that's left un- unspent can be passed on to any beneficiary free of any inheritance tax. If you die after age 75 then any remaining pension fund can be accessed by any beneficiary and your beneficiary will pay tax at their marginal rate as and when they touch it. Um, Previously there were restrictions on who could inherit or if you gave some money to somebody who wasn't your spouse or a dependent as a form of a lump sum it suffered a 55% tax charge. Now you could leave your pension fund and allow your grandchildren to draw from it using their personal allowance of 10,800 each year and they could pay no tax so there's substantial tax savings to be made 
on inheritance planning with pensions now as a result of the new rules. We're, we're largely talking about defined contribution pension plans here, money purchase, personal pensions. Uh, defined benefit schemes, uh, the older style, uh, don't have quite the same um, freedoms coming forward. And we're seeing clients now who are in those schemes are looking beyond moving out of defined benefit into defined contribution, which is actually a big subject. It's difficult to give up um, a guaranteed income just for some freedoms down the line, which governments may change in the future anyway. So there are, there are risks involved there. It's very difficult to generalise and I think you need to start from the point of view that it's probably not the right thing to do for you and look for the exceptions where that is the case. So the, the, the areas where I think people should pay most attention to this is people with very large defined benefit pensions because if their company who sponsored the pension plan was to go insolvent and there wasn't enough money in the pension scheme to pay everybody's benefits, then the people with the biggest pensions get the biggest cutbacks. So you are more at risk if your company does happen to go bust, like Woolworths did, you know, many household names it has happened to. And as Lee said, you know, you could be 25, 30 years in retirement. So you, you perhaps don't want to take that risk. Other situations where it might pay is if you're in very poor health. So the guaranteed income for life, as Lee says, it's a great thing. You wouldn't want to give it up easily. But if your life's not expected to be that long, actually taking the transfer value could be in your interest. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably start even before I get there, just saying that um, my I have a big fear right now that um, there is a lot of pension money up for grabs and unscrupulous people will be after that money. So people have got to be incredibly careful about the things they invest in and they should look at Scam Smart on the regulator's website, they should look at PensionWise. Um, going through to buy to let as an asset class, um, we don't advise on property. I understand it's, I mean, it's done particularly well. Properties, particularly in the southeast, has raced forward and shows no real sign of abating. So I'm sure people will be very, very tempted by it. People like things they can touch, bricks and mortar. They've, they've had experience themselves. They've had their own property. There's that whole thing of if I buy it, I can put I can put a child in it while they're at university, then I can let it out, etc. So I think it will be attractive. But just beware if you're taking big lump sums out to go into buy-to-let property, you're going to be suffering quite a big tax charge on the way. That will affect your yield going forward, at least for a while. So I understand the attractions. I, I Personally, I'd rather have a more diversified portfolio. Yes, I do. And actually, when we look at our research, we've we've surveyed 500 people who are about to retire in the next 12 months. It's only a tiny minority that actually plan to use some of their lump sum to go into buy to let. It's perhaps only 4% of those people. So we're not seeing it as a, a big driver. Obviously, it, it's probably more attractive to people with defined benefit pensions who've got large incomes that's quite secure they think that will be enough for me to meet all my essential expenses so my tax-free lump sum if I'm getting say £150,000 worth of tax-free cash from that they might well look to put that into a property because they feel more comfortable with property but it is only a tiny minority of people are doing it and my advice to anybody listening is just make sure you've covered all your essential expenses with secure income if you have then you can afford to invest more freely buy to let by all means but remember, you've got a lot tied up in property in your residential house as well. You never want too much in any one asset class. It's, I think it's often in the way of the telling. If, if, you, if I were to say to a client, without describing the annuity, if I said, if I could give you a guaranteed secure income from the rest of your life and give you no market risk worry, what do you think? 
typically they would say, yes, I'd rather fancy that. And then you say it's an annuity. And you go, oh, no, they don't, well, I don't want an annuity. I don't like those. And I think they've suffered a bit from, obviously, very low interest rates. So people have come to yeah. not like them. They've had a bit of a pretty tough time in the press as well. But if, if you're looking for secure income, then there is a place for them. Particularly, as Alan said earlier, if, if there's impaired health, you get a better rate. So I think at least for a part of your income, they may make sense. The other thing, of course, if you, if you cover all your basic expenses with an annuity, it allows you more freedom to take a slightly... Uh, more adventurous, shall we say, investment approach, which you will need for a 20 to 25 year retirement. If you've covered essential expenses with secure income from your state pension, from any final salary pension and from an annuity if necessary, then that gives you much more freedom. People reaching state pension age before April 2016, though, can take um, make use of an alternative way of having a secure income, and that's to rely more on the state. If you don't take your state pension when you're first eligible and defer taking it, it increases at a fantastic rate of 10.4%. You could spend more of your private pension money up front instead of using it to buy an annuity and get much more from the state than you would be able to buy from an insurance company. It can give you more than double the annuity that you could buy on the open market. So that's an option for people reaching state pension age before 6th of April 2016. Jesse, can you tell us about what you've chosen? And well, there's been an enormous amount of discussion around the latest two-day meeting of the Federal Reserve, and in particular around whether or not it was going to drop the word patient from its four guidance statement um, in relation to interest rates. An enormous amount of obsession over this word, and in fact it did drop the word patient, um, which led people to think that it will be raising rates from zero where they've been since the financial crisis. Um, so that means that from June, the Fed's going to be making the decision kind of meeting by meeting rather than pledging to keep rates low for a really long time and um, it's, it's kind of a big a big deal because the US has been on the path to recovery for a while ever since the crisis and it looks like this could be a signal that it's finally emerged. Um, the end of quantitative easing happened last year but then things like wage growth have been a bit slower and the strength of the dollar has had a bit of an impact. They've kind of notoriously failed to outperform the benchmark and last year was a really tough year for all of them and I think a lot of money has kind of flooded into cheaper passive funds as a result. Um, a lot of managers said that with rates being so low, investors were kind of pushed into or, or more interested in dividend-paying defensive stocks, which hasn't helped those managers more focused on the kind of value-orientated smaller companies. So a lot of them said they've you know, struggled last year and it was quite a difficult time. There's also a bit of infighting among active managers saying that a lot of them were kind of hugging the benchmark and there wasn't quite enough you know, individual thinking. But in terms of how some of those macro trends have impacted funds, the dollar and the strength of the dollar has really hit some of them. So, for example, UBS Equity Fund spoke to Tom Diggin, who said that the strength of the dollar impacted on food brand Yum!, and confectionery company Mondelez because of um, revenue generated outside the US being impacted. And also the oil price fall has hit some companies which managers held. So there were a few kind of headwinds that were slightly unpredictable and really impacted on them. They're all, you know, they all say their time is coming really and and that this year and from now onwards will, will be the time for active managers to shine as rates rise and investors are slightly more interested in maybe looking for some value opportunities. So they've all got quite different views on where that value will come from. Um, so, for example, Tom Diggin, and he really likes banks, which you know might surprise some people, but his view is that um, regulatory scares have, have made them better value, and actually a lot of banks have really deleveraged, making them a better option.
The oil price falls has presented interesting opportunities, both for companies whose share prices crashed and might come back up, but some other kind of interesting trends in terms of things like car retailing, which is a massive market for the US. Quite a few managers were talking about that. Um, so, for example, Mark Sherlock at Hermes, US SMID equity fund, he likes a car supermarket called CarMax. Because a lot of managers said that actually this is a really good area for value and the the major players have quite a small market share. So there's a lot of potential for growth and there is the potential that with petrol prices coming down, maybe people will spend that excess on a new car. Any thoughts on the other side of the spectrum? One of the largest shareholders in Alliance Trust, Elliott Advisors, wants to add three new directors to the board because they're unhappy about a number of things. Alliance Trust rejects the idea and is telling its shareholders to vote against the suggestion at the AGM on the 29th of April. Since Elliot initially made the requisition on the 16th of March, the two have entered a war of words and they seem to be filing claim and counterclaim against each other day in, day out. But but to summarise, um, Elliot um, has a number of grievances, which, which some other people share. I mean, they point out to underperformance of Alliance Trust against sector peers and benchmarks, which is true. It hasn't done the best. They also complain about the high and inflexible nature of the trust's um, internal investment management function. And they also don't like the fact there's losses in two of the subsidiaries, Alliance Trust Savings and Alliance Trust Investments. Those are the three main things. The other things they kind of pick up on are the discount to net assets value, which is obviously a result of the per performance. And they're also not happy about internal appointments, about consultation of shareholders. Alliance Trust appointed a new head of equities in autumn uh, last year and they didn't consult shareholders. Elliot would actually like the management to be outsourced because they think um, an external manager could do it more cheaply and offer better performance. In their words, they say the board would benefit from added expertise, experience and a fresh perspective. The people the people have lined up are like former financial services people, Anthony Brook, Peter Chambers, who actually used to be the chief executive officer of legal and general investment management, and Rory McNamara, um, so all quite experienced individuals. Alliance Trust really takes objection to this. It says shareholders should vote against it because it argues that the directors aren't independent because they've been put up by um, Elliot. Now, what Elliot says is it paid a search firm. It didn't get the directors themselves and it didn't know the directors. Therefore, they are independent because a search firm found them. Alliance Trust says because Elliot paid the search firm, the directors aren't independent. So that's, you know, that's one of the bones of contention. I mean, they're um, they a private shareholder representative organisation and they put out a statement kind of backing Elliot's actions because, again, they feel that poor performance wide discount to NAVs aren't good. And there is an annual um, general meeting coming yeah, up, the 29th isn't there? Yeah, 29th of yes. April when people get to vote on the issue. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Alliance Trust doesn't want shareholders to back this action. I mean, it also thinks Elliot's like a short-termist hedge fund out to get a quick profit and leave everybody high and dry. And apparently... Elliot has suggested a 40% tender for shares as a way to narrow the discount. Alliance Trust says that would involve selling off a lot of good assets. Elliot says it's not a short-term shareholder. It's a long-term shareholder. It's held a shares for five years. And its solution, putting directors on, is not short-termist. So 
the debate weighs on. The trust had a, a pretty bad year. Um, its net asset value fell 26.4%. Share price fell 30%, whereas it's it, the uh, euro money global mining index only went down 13%. And the reason for this is the investment trust's holdings of non-equity investments. Now, mining, mining funds and mining investment trusts typically buy the shares of mining companies. But in 2012... BlackRock started to invest in royalties from mines. The reason it did that was to boost its um, its income because it, it adopted a new, a new high income policy. And the trust's board says that buying royalties um, allows it to participate in long-term production revenues and resource growth and um, diversifies the trust source of revenue. So it's not just relying on dividends. Now, unfortunately, in October, it had to write down one of the royalties um, from the Mavampa mine, as well as a convertible bond, um, both issued by iron ore producer London Mining. Uh, London Mining couldn't meet its financial obligations because of a fall in the iron price, slow than expected ramp-up of a second plant, and the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, where the mine is based. Um, so we've written down the value of that to zero. Um, BlackRock also reduced the valuation of some gold-linked preference shares and a corporate bond issued by Banro, where this has had less of an impact. Um, so what they thought was going to be you know, a really good source of income in two out of three cases has turned out quite badly. They still have another, the option of buying another royalty, so that they may, they may include that. And they haven't ruled out investing in more royalties, but what they have done is tightened up the guidelines for what they can include. Um, I think as a result of that, um, you know, it's poor performance, things gone slightly awry. One of the managers, Catherine Raw's left. Now, BlackRock says it's to take up a corporate position within the mining sector. But, um, you know, obviously, you know, well, I suppose it, she wasn't leaving things in a, in a good shape. I don't know. Um, the new manager um, is going to be Olivia Markham. And she's also co-manager of BlackRock Commodities Income Investment Trust. Um, Evie Hambo, who's, a, I think, the main manager on um, BlackRock World Money, he, he continues on in the position. Um, so it was a bit of a change over. And it's not very concerned because I feel, you know, the, it was very much a team approach, BlackRock taken. Evie Hambo's still there. And will deeds of variation enable beneficiaries of a will to amend that will after death, as long as all the beneficiaries agree and the changes are made? within two years if, if those changes have tax implications. And, and why is it used? Is it is for tax planning purposes? Yeah, most commonly um, seems to be used to pass an estate to your children. For example, if, if you receive the estate but you don't have need for it and you want that to go to your children, um, you can amend it so that it goes directly there and you don't, you know, both sets of people don't have to pay inheritance tax. Um, although it's also used if, if a will has maybe left people out or, or the beneficiaries feel that it's unfair. Well, I mean, it's unclear. In the, in the budget, um, he announced it partly as a bit of a swipe to Ed Miliband, potentially, who has used this um, with his own family. Um, but he just said that he'd be reviewing the use of deeds of variation for tax purposes as a part of his wider intention to clamp down on tax avoidance. I mean, it's important to, to note that he didn't say he would definitely be scrapping it and with such uncertainty over the election, who knows whether, you know, the review will go ahead and, and who will even be in power to, to look at it. Yeah, well, I think I think it's important to think about things you could do now just in case. And one of those things is if you were thinking about amending a will, you know, you've got two years, but you might as well do it now um, just in case 
they are scrapped. And also, everybody has to agree on this change. So it could you know, involve a bit of negotiation among your family. Might as well get moving now. Um, but the best thing for everyone is to just make sure your will is up to date so that there's no need to amend it anyway. So have these conversations with your families. And You know, it's been a geopolitical week, I think, John. You, we touched upon Greece already briefly. And then, obviously, um, there's been Chinese GDP figures. But also, you know, a big, a big uh, piece of news in the world politics is the deal with Iran. Oh, yes. Uh, over their nuclear ambitions and reining them in a little bit. Uh, Whether they had any in the first place. Well, indeed, they would argue not. In terms of building a nuclear weapon, bomb. Nuclear yeah, yeah. I mean, they, the Iranians have always contended that their nuclear program is for uh, domestic energy production. There were some figures from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, saying that Iran's economy would be the size of Saudi Arabia's now if it hadn't been for the impact of sanctions. Mm-hmm. So for that country, it's no surprise that there have been people dancing in the streets to welcome this. Um, so if there are any hardliners derailing the deal, um, I would argue it's probably more likely to be from the US side. So Obama has got a bit of a job ahead of him selling this deal to yeah. uh, the US Congress. You know, it's not many years ago that um, you had senators saying, bomb, bomb, bomb Iran. Obama has vowed to use his presidential veto to get this one thing through. I think he, you get the impression that there's one thing he actually achieves between now and the end of his presidency, it's this. Yeah, and I think even for the pragmatists within the policymakers, um, in terms of looking for stabilizing forces within that region, Iran is going to have been increasingly viewed as kind of one of the more stable and more predictable of the state actors within the region. So even for the people that you know don't have much love for the country, um, you know I think there's probably an emerging pragmatism towards Iran and the role that it plays. I went to Iran kind of eight nine years ago, um, and yeah, lots of sides of the society, particularly within Tehran, there's a big westernized kind of part of the society that like the similar kinds of fashion and similar kind of things to what you see on British High Street. So it also, on the uh, company side of thing, opened up some interesting avenues for um, UK and, and Western companies to access that market. They've also got, what, about £65 billion of assets frozen. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to those as well. There is some theory that, that actually a lot of this quarter's growth was boosted by the stock market rally. People, right, so people feeling a bit more flush because their shares were going up. So we could see it. I'm not saying I'm not saying I believe these figures and that they're definitely genuine, but I'm saying that there's a good chance they may have that the economy may have been boosted in recent months and that could that effect could disappear now. You yeah, also had really. some strong words from BlackRock today criticizing the government intervention in the market. Um so obviously BlackRock BlackRock one of the world's biggest money managers. Mm. If you start to lose those kind of investors, not good for your stock market. There's been some bridging finance has now been forwarded to Greece so that right. you know that the initial pressure is off. And and Mario Draghi's been having his uh, press conference this afternoon um for the, from the ECB and he he has hinted at that there will be some within the talks now now that Greece has agreed that there could be some uh, potential talk of debt relief they've been seen to, to, to have really sort of put put the pressure on Greece and kept the pressure on even when Greece was was really suffering and especially these the expectations for growth in the Greek economy that are built into this package you know even the IMF has said you know these these are a stretch at best mm. yeah, um, yeah, so ambitious. you know I, I know we long predicted it would be a fudge I don't want to kind of be, use that strong a word but I mean you know, it's hard to see how Greece is going to live up to uh, this package, even if it kind of enacts the reforms as requested. It still might not be enough. Yeah. It's all, almost as if somebody wants them to fail, Ian. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Indeed. Uh, and Janet Yellen's appearance in front of senators and, and legislators in the US as well. Yeah. So, the, you know, the, the chatter's rising, I think. Mm. For, for, for a long, long time, we've had, we've had unemployment falling, but wages not 
growing and that suddenly the the, the correlation is flipped and yeah. it could be this uh, productivity conundrum you know uh, unwinding itself uh, but it's quite early to say yeah i mean I, part of the part of the thing here is i think that inflation to some extent has been driven by external factors like oil prices now later this year those factors will fall out of the equation so you'll see inflation tick up again. There's various aspects. I mean, the house builders are very much like the property scene is um, deeply and strictly correlated with um, economic growth. If the economy is hand healthy, house builders will be okay, especially since the demand supply imbalance. It's interesting because during the recession, uh, when everyone was hit, um, the demand for housing didn't go away because people were growing up leaving mm. home, et cetera, et cetera. Now that uh, the, the economy is back on its feet, that demand is still there. And in fact, there's a backlog. But the house builders just can't hope to cover that gap. The trouble is that local authorities have got a problem because apart from local interests that preclude you building houses next door to people who don't want them there, there's also the, the planning process, which is suffering because planning authority, uh, the planning departments are severely under-resourced. Mm. They, they can't process more anyway. So finding them for not clearing planning applications in time is not going to sort it out. There's a suggestion that house builders or the government could actually create some sort of funding to help this along its way. Well, it's, it's a bit naughty because um, new house build doesn't dictate prices. What the house builders do is... Um, they basically track what's happening in the already built market. So if um, already built houses are going up 10% a year, they'll be quite happy to shove up new build prices for 8% by 8%. Um, and the worry is for them is that if they doubled production, which they obviously couldn't, the supply-demand imbalance would be cured, and so obviously upward pressure on prices would diminish. Mm. Uh, and basically they, they don't want to... Um, sell price, uh, houses for level prices, especially at a time when cost inflation, mainly um, bricklayers and people like that, they're, they're going up 3 4% a year. Try to sort of make bricklaying and surveying and things like that a little bit more sexy um, rather than sort of going into tech. But, you know, you're talking sort of two, three, four, five hundred apprenticeships when you need two, three, four, five thousand. Yeah. So that side of things will improve over time, but not yet. I, I think it's no. I think it's a, a tactic designed to raise money. That's it. Yeah. So that so they don't care about the the moral the philosophical argument about you know ha new housing going to to, to, to well, landlords rather than owners. They haven't really thought it through. If they think that by making it less attractive to become a landlord, you're going to restrict the number of rental properties, and that's going to mess up the system even more. I mean, it's almost a collective judgment, you know. Obviously, if, if one landlord puts his prices, his rental up, um, all the others will follow. So, yeah, it's a, it's a done deal. It's arguable how much the market will take, but um, once you percolate all the other bits and pieces, I mean, landlords could set up companies, private companies, um, and in that case, they wouldn't have to pay interest rate charges, would be tax exempt or tax relievable. Okay, great. Thanks, guys.